Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Well, Revelation 20 is where we're at. We're rounding out the end of this chapter. And I wanted to start by sharing something about me that you may not know. Most of you would know that I grew up in Kentucky. Most of you would know I grew up in Louisville, a city right on the Indiana-Kentucky border. I was born in Louisville, lived my whole life there, born and raised, and then when I went off to college, I, uh, I left and, and haven't moved back since. But you may not know that the part of Louisville that I grew up in was the west end of Louisville, which you could just refer to it this way, it's the rough end of Louisville. Uh, it is the spot that you really probably don't want to live in, you don't want to move to, uh, there's more crime certainly, and, uh, and, it's, and it's not the nicest of places, honestly. But that's where our church was, that's where our school was, that's where uh, I lived for a big chunk of my life. Uh, in the West End, there's little communities, in the same way that here, there's all within, you know, a mile of each other practically, Natrona Heights and Natrona and Brackenridge, you know, there's these little communities within the community, and the little community that we were in is called Portland, not Portland, Oregon, but it's just called Portland. And I looked up this week some of the statistics on Portland, and I knew it was rough. I didn't know it was this rough, though, growing up. Uh, Portland is in the real estate market. It's in the bottom 3% of the country. Uh, the divorce rate in Portland is higher than 99.9% .9 of the country, which means, like, they're the top, the, the absolute tippy-top. The per capita income is the, uh, in the lowest 4% of the country. Children living in poverty is in the bottom 2% of the country. And the neighborhood could be called anything but safe. Uh, there's one website in particular that I thought was very helpful. They gave crime statistics, but then they had a rating based off of your crime statistics from one to 10. One would be safest and 10 would be most dangerous. And Portland was, as I suspected it would be, 10, most dangerous. And I won't enumerate all of the different statistics that are there, but that's just where, uh, it's where we spent most of our time. And one night after church, I can remember my, my dad decided to go to McDonald's on the way home. It was a Sunday night, summer night, and a McDonald's was about a block and a half from church. It's still there. And he decided when he went in to order some hamburgers for the kids or himself or whoever it was, that he was going to leave the car running. He thought, it's a summer night, it's hot, I'll leave it going, keep the AC going. You know, I don't want to get back into a hot car. He had just started it. So he left it running, but he thought, I'm going to park right here by these glass windows on the front, walk in order, and keep an eye on it the whole time, and then I'll, I'll walk out. It'll be fine. So he walked in, he ordered, then a church member was over in the corner and caught his attention. Hey, and they got to talking for a few minutes, and he turned around and he walked out to find that his car was no longer there. And at first he thought one of the teenagers from the church or somebody just was messing with him, pulling a prank on him. You know, they pulled it around to the other side of the, of the store or something like that. But he quickly realized, no, no one's messing with him. Somebody stole my car. So he called the police. He reported it to the police. And about a week or so went by. And the person who is now driving my dad's Nissan Maxima, the thief who committed Grand Theft Auto, happened to rear-end a vehicle now, I say it happened. They were heavily under the influence, so you, you might suspect that that would happen. But it was midday, and they ran into the back of, believe it or not, 
a Louisville Metro Police Department cruiser. They ran into the back of a cop. Knowing that this was a bad scenario, that this was not going to unfold well for them and that there was gonna be insurance and registration and all this stuff and that they were gonna be found out, they panicked and decided that they would run. So put it in reverse, stomped on the gas, did not even look if anyone was behind them and started to back up only to front end or back into another car, which true story, was a second Louisville Metro Police Department <laughs> cruiser sandwiched in between the police. The police had, uh, apparently they took their break together at a gas station and went in and got some snacks and there were three or four cruisers and they had pulled out shortly after each other and had uh, trapped uh, this, this young man who had stolen the car. Of course, he was arrested, he was jailed, he, he pled guilty and my dad was invited to the sentencing where he could be there and see justice served. And my dad was pretty interested in this because he got the car back, but the car was, was trashed. There, there were whiskey bottles and beer cans all over the place. There were cigarette burns all over the seats. There was a, a lot of, uh, there was a lot of actually loose tobacco from a cigar that they had poked out. Long story. Uh, joints, uh, all kinds of stuff all over the car, smelt, all that stuff. So he wanted to go to co court and see who stole my car and he wanted to watch him get sentenced. He, he didn't have to say anything, didn't have to do anything, just stood there. And he stood there as this young man pled guilty to Grand Theft Auto and the judge handed out the sentencing that day. And I don't know if you've ever been in front of a judge. Maybe it was something like traffic court. Maybe it was something a little heavier that you got a misdemeanor. You have a felony or you did some jail time or whatever. But you know that that would not be a fun scenario to stand there guilty before the judge being served your sentence. And the story that we read about today in Revelation 20 is the story of humanity standing before an almighty judge, guilty as all get out, and being sentenced. And I want us to understand a bit about this judgment today. And I think that this is so incredibly needful because in our culture, judgment is something that we have a weird relationship with. Nobody wants to be judged, but everybody wants to judge. Nobody wants to say, hey, look at me and scrutinize me and tell me what's wrong. Nobody wants to accept that, you know, leave me alone. I'll decide what's right and wrong. I have my own moral compass. I am the arbiter of what's righteous or not righteous. I get to decide. I live my own life. I'm the master of my own fate. Leave me alone. Don't judge me. But then we turn around and we love to point the finger at other people and say, you're what's wrong with this country. And if it wasn't for you, our family would be way better off. And, and, and if we would get rid of those 20% at work, I mean, the place would just run a lot smoother. And we want to point the finger at everybody else. And today we get to see what this final judgment, this judgment day will be like before a great white throne. And I want us to understand basically five questions today. Five is a few more than I would normally give, but they're all needful. The questions are, who's the judge? Then who's not the judge? Who will be judged? What will they be judged for? And can this judgment be avoided? So let's start with the idea of who's the judge and let's read the text. Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. More to come on that next week. And I saw the dead, small and great. The, the people who had influence, the people who didn't have influence. The people who had money, the people who didn't have money. The power players and those that were marginalized. 
I saw them small and great stand before God and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them judged every man according to their works. And death and hell, they were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So let's start here. Who's the judge? Well, thankfully, verse number 12 tells us very clearly, you don't have to guess. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before who? God. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. You say, what do you mean, God? Because God's one in essence, but three in persons, right? You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, specifically, we mean God the Son. We mean Jesus. Jesus actually made note of this to his audience when he was here on earth, and they thought that he was crazy. I mean, they found it to be incredulous that he would say such a thing, that he was declaring himself to be God when Jesus said, on that day when the dead are raised, I will be the one who judges. John 5, verse 22, the father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the son and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. So he gives me the judgment and I can also execute it. I can, I can commence the sentencing. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and they shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. This is talking about the resurrection of damnation, as Jesus put it. Those that have not done good, the resurrection of the unjust, this day where they will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is a savior, yes, but he is also a judge. And you can't hold court if the, if the judge is dead. But this judge walked out of the grave, canceled his own funeral, and is living, and will judge one day. And it is unescapable, it is unavoidable. That's part of what verse 11 means when it says, earth and heaven fled away from his face. There is nowhere to hide. Adam and Eve sinned, but they had some trees or some hedges to hide behind. On this day, there is not a tree, there is not a garden, there is not a rock, there is not a bed you can crawl under. There is nothing that will hide you from him and the dead will be raised and then in turn judged. And Jesus on this day will not be deceived, he will not be disputed, he will not be discredited, he will be the just judge. There is a judge, it's an almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ is his name. But there's also a question that I think it's fair to ask, who's not the judge? You know who's not the judge? Anybody not named Jesus. And if your parents named you Jesus, then you too, but anyone that's not actually Jesus. That includes you, that includes me. And this is important, and I wanna hit this hard. Because we live in a culture that teaches us to judge incessantly, but not want to be judged. And the opposite should be true. That we shouldn't judge, but should be receptive to whatever people have to say, but especially what God has to say. We live in a culture that we're conditioned to actually give our judgments often. And some of this is profitable and helpful, but I want you to consider for a moment that you may judge more than you realize, right? When you call a customer service hotline, you'll talk to the representative and generally speaking, at the end of it, they'll ask you, do you wanna participate in a three minute survey at the end of this call? To which I always say no, but some of you say yes. And you know the three minute survey isn't a three minute survey. It's a 90 minute survey with 8,000 questions, right? 
How did they answer your questions on time? Did they resolve your issue? Would you be willing to refer someone to our business? Do you think we should give them a paycheck this week? You know, they ask you all these questions about this representative and you get to be their judge for a brief moment, right? You buy something on Amazon and what do you get to do? You get to judge it. You get to one star it or three star it or five star it, whatever you want to do, right? And you get to fill out your little form and, and say your verdict on the quality of the product and, and how well it held up or if it met your expectations. Much of our social media is uh, premised on the idea that we judge, right? We thumbs up or we thumbs down. I like what you said. I don't like what you said. I have a frowny face about what you just posted. I have a happy face about what you just posted. What are we doing? We are rendering our verdicts about what someone has said or done or posted. And this creates a culture where we are constantly looking with a critical eye. We are constantly judging, but we very rarely judge ourselves. We're constantly looking out to see, did they meet my expectations? Did they hold up their, up their end of the deal? Were, were they a good spouse? Were they a good child? Were they on their best behavior? But we rarely look at ourselves. We excuse ourselves. We let ourselves off the hook over and over and over again with our lame excuses, the excuses that if your employee gave to you, you would never accept, but you give them to other people and think that they should accept, right? Well, I was just tired. Well, I slept too much. I was groggy. Well, get in the middle somehow. I ate too much. I was hangry. I was, I've, I was born this way. I, uh, my family's this way. I'm Italian. We're emotional. We blow up on people. You know, it's just what we do. And we blame it on everything. But we never want to look in the mirror and say, maybe there's a problem with me and judge ourselves. And this works its way into families and into churches and into homes and it, and it erodes places that should be healthy and they no longer are. We're actually warned about this pretty significantly in Romans chapter number 14, where we are told in no uncertain terms, as, for as is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of who? Himself to God. Both of those are really important. You will give an account to God, not to the mirror. You will give an account to God, not to your peers who are putting pressure on you, not to your parents. You give an account to God. Who do you give an account for? You. Not them, not your coworkers, not your spouse, not your children. You will give an account for how you were as a coworker and how you were as a parent and how you were as a spouse, but you give an account for you. So verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore but judge this rather. You want to judge? You want to be judgy, judgy, judgy? Judge this, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now that verse is money. You know what it says? Instead of judging all them, why don't you judge yourself and take a long, hard look and ask yourself, am I making their spiritual walk more difficult? Am I the problem? Am, am I hindering them? Is there something wrong with me? You want to judge? Judge you. Because you will give an account for you to God is what it's saying. Now that's important. It's important that every single person gets a hold of that concept. Because if you want to judge them all the time, far more than you judge yourself, it will hurt relationships. This can work its way into a church where a church all of a sudden has a culture of being judgmental and critical all the time. And what happens is what Paul warns about in Galatians, where they begin to quote, bite and devour one another. 
And instead of exhorting each other and building each other up and loving each other and helping each other and being gracious and kind to each other and forgiving each other, instead it is a culture of judgment and criticism. It, it turns not into accountability, but into harsh accountability and people, they either buckle under the pressure and eventually crumple or they run from it. If this works its way into a home where a parent or both parents constantly have a gavel in their hand rendering verdicts on the children, the children start to pick up on this and the children, not only do they not like it, it begins to produce anxiety in them. It begins to produce a fear in them, especially a fear that if I ever bring anything forward, I know how that's gonna go. I'm gonna get hammered by the judge. There's, there's no mercy in this home. There's no second chance in this home. There is high accountability and high me being judged for my every move. And so the kids start to become connivers and deceivers and they start to hide and they, and they constantly want to throw shade on whatever they've done because they're, they're fearful of being judged all the time. There's always a verdict. There's always something wrong. There's always a critical eye. I could do 10 things right and they're ignored, but I do one thing wrong and I'm nailed to the wall for it. This works its way into marriages where one or both of the spouses are a little judge with their gavel, constantly judging the other spouse. And the other spouse gets real tired of it. And some of you, if your spouse could be honest with you on the way home today, they would tell you, I can't do anything because it'll be the only thing that we talk about. The smallest thing, and that is the whole day. It's the whole week. Something that's, I don't know, medium size, that's a, that's a whole month. I'm gonna get hammered over this. I'm gonna get my, my nose rubbed in this. I'm gonna be judged and criticized and there is no mercy and there is no graciousness. There is just a critical spirit and it wears on people. It wears them down. And you may be unintentional, you may have good intentions like trying to help them or trying to hold them accountable or you may just be really peeved at what they do or you've had a long week at work. But whatever the case, when there is a spirit of judgment and criticism that starts to grip any relationship or any body or any organization, it hurts. Some of you have friends that are this way or you used to have friends that were this way probably where every time you talk to them, it was just like the gossip hour. It was them being critical of everybody else and everything that they did. And they did this and they did that and they did this and they did that and didn't you know and oh and so and so. And there's never praise. There's never a good report. There's never the 99 things that went right at church. There's the one thing that went wrong. It's all that it is all the time. And then you, you look around and you wonder, why don't I have friends anymore? I keep inviting people over to my house. I make the best brownies. Like when they get here, we're gonna have a good time. I'm super hospitable. Look, your good brownies do not trump your critical spirit. I'll take no brownies in a peaceful spirit over good brownies in a critical spirit any day of the week. The issue is not your baking. The issue is that you're judgy and you're critical all the time. And the Bible tries to help you to say, look, you will give an account for you. So judge yourself if you want to. And you're gonna give an account to God. He's the judge. Jesus is doing just fine. Like he doesn't need an assist now or in the future. And if you're like, well, I don't see him judging the world right now. It's coming. Like 
don't be mad at the patience of God. He was patient with you and you're grateful for it. So he's, he's being pretty patient right now, but there will be a day, we're reading about it right here, where the unjust will be judged rightly for all that they have done. And on that day, you won't climb up in his lap and render judgments with him. Not gonna happen. You're not gonna sneak around the great white throne and get on the back and start to whisper little things into his ear, right? There's no day where Jesus is like, you know what? They have your last name. Why don't you judge them? I, you could probably do a better job. You know them better than me anyway. It's not gonna happen. Jesus is the just judge. You are not, so let him judge. And on this day in particular, who is being judged? Well, the text told you. Verse number 12, what does it say? It says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. End of verse number 12. The dead were judged. Verse number 13. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were what? They were judged. You say, okay, that's helpful. The dead are being judged. There's a resurrection that's happening. Who are the dead? Well, they're coming from death and hell. That's a hint. Verse 15 will tell you their names are not found in the book of life. That's a big hint. Jesus and Daniel talked about this and they called it the resurrection to damnation or the resurrection of the unjust. So let me put it very simple for you. All those who are not on the divine register of those Jesus has given eternal life to, the book of life, all those who are not in the book of life, all those who have not put their faith in Jesus, all those who have not been justified by Jesus and his blood, those unjust are delivered on this day. This is a resurrection that corresponds to the earlier resurrection that we studied about last week. Remember that? Verse number six, just a couple verses before this of Revelation 20, that there was the opposite. There was this blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection, which certainly intimates there's a second resurrection at least. On such the second death has no power. They'll be priests of God and of Christ, right? There's a first resurrection to life, blessed, happy. The second death doesn't touch you. Then there is this resurrection unto death, not blessed, not happy, condemned. It says very clearly, the second death does have power on them. Two separate ones. Daniel and Jesus, when they talk about this, they clearly give you two separate ones, but you don't know if they're like back to back or at the same time. This gives you greater clarity that there's actually a gap in between these two. But this is the resurrection of the unjust and we're told what they're judged for. And this is, this is sobering. What are they judged for? Verse number 12, they are judged, quote, according to their works. And there's this whole episode of these books are brought out, right? And I don't know what books is. I don't know if that's two or if that's 20 or that's a million. I don't know if this is a library or a small collection that sits on the desk. I don't know if these are small little books. I don't know if there's a book for each person. I don't know if they're giant, huge books. I don't know if they're gold or black. I don't know if they have a leather cover. I don't know. But there's books, plural, and it tells you what's written in the books. What's written in the books are the works of the unjust that they will be judged by. You say, God doesn't have an Excel spreadsheet that he's logging all this stuff in? Nope, it's a book. Manual, he's hard copy, right? These books come out. 
What's in the books? Their works. What do you mean their works? Well, if you read the Bible, it will tell you specifically things that you will be judged for on judgment day if you are here before the great white throne. If you read in, in Romans, it tells you that the unjust will be judged for what they knew to be wrong. Romans 2, and I have to untangle this because the wording is a little bit tricky, but it's helpful to know. It says, for the Gentiles, the people which do not have the law, right? They're not the Jewish people that had the Old Testament law. They didn't have all these rules. But they do by nature the things contained in the law. These, having not the law, are law unto themselves. What do you mean they're law unto themselves? Well, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. Their conscience also bears them witness. And their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. What is he saying? He's saying there are a lot of people who they were never taught. Their parents didn't teach them right and wrong. Didn't give them a moral compass. There were a lot of people who didn't have the Bible. They didn't have God's laws delivered. Well, what about them? But they knew inside, by and large, what was right and what was wrong. They knew internally that there was a moral compass baked in, and we as humans, we know from our creator that it is wrong to murder, that it is wrong to steal my dad's car, that it is wrong to, to take what's not yours. We know these things. To lie or to slander, like these are baked into us, and it calls it, calls it a conscience inside, and the conscience it says accuses or excuses, right? It says don't do that. It accuses you. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. Or it excuses you. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. And we all have one of these. And what it says about this internal thing that's in us, verse, the next verse, verse 16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel, what it says is you'll be judged for that. You'll be judged for what you knew to be wrong and you did it anyway. You'll also be judged, and this is, it may not be scary at first, but it should be. You'll be judged for what you judged others for. One of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible is Jesus in Matthew 7, where he says, quote, judge not, and people want to act like that was the whole sentence, right? That there was a period, and then he changed the subject, and was like, you want to go get some McDonald's? Like, he didn't. He kept going, judge not, why? That you be not judged. What do you mean that I be not judged? For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, or whatever little ruler you got for people, it'll be measured unto you again. That same ruler is going to be applied to you, Right? And Romans 2 makes it abundantly clear that this little ruler that we have for everybody else, if we hold ourselves up to it, we don't measure up. We are found very wanting. And don't we know this? We look and say, they should be on time for work and they should get their act together and, and someone should confront them about their substance abuse. And then don't, don't you know it? You're late for work and your life starts to fall apart and all of a sudden you have substance abuse. And we look at our kids. If, if you're a parent, you get this for sure. Because the things you tell your kids not to do, you turn right around and then you're doing them. And you're like, mm, I think I know where they got some of that, right? Don't yell at your brother, be nice. Um, I think I may know why they're yelling at their brother and not being super nice, right? This happens all the time that we hold this standard up and these rules for people. And God's rules are God's rules. You'll be judged for those too, but what it says is you'll even be judged by your own rules. And if you can't keep your own rules, what makes you think you can keep God's rules? You can't. You absolutely cannot. You are a contradiction unto yourself. And Jesus says, be careful. Be careful when you point the finger at them. Be careful when you hold them to that ultra high standard 
because that finger is going to point right back at you one day and that ultra high standard is going to be applied to you one day. You're going to be judged for that. It's written in the books. What else are they judged for? They judge for what they said. Matthew 12, Jesus says in no uncertain terms, every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Everything you've said. You say, I've said some good stuff. I know. Me too. I've said some encouraging words. I've said some words that were true and honest and helpful and of good report. I've said some things that built people up and produced life in them. But wouldn't you know it, I've said some things that were the opposite of that, that were critical and gossip and slander and dishonest and deceitful. Things that were not life-giving, things that were not fountains, things that were drains, things that were death, things that were harmful. And if you know you, you know you have too. Things you wish you could take back. Things you wish you would have never said, that you would have just owned it right away. Please don't forget about that, because God hasn't. Every idle word will be judged on the day of judgment. What are you judged for? You're judged for what you knew to be wrong and you did anyway. You're also judged, according to James, bonus, you're judged for what you knew to be right and you didn't, the sin of omission. You didn't do what you knew you should have done. You're judged for the ruler you held up to other people. You're judged for the words that you said, but you're also judged for what you thought was hidden. And this is the scariest of all, maybe. Romans 2 says it this way, in the day when God shall judge, what? The secrets of men. Hebrews puts it in these terms. It says, there is, there is no creature that is not manifest in his sight, speaking of Jesus, but all things are naked and opened to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let that sink in for a minute, okay? All things are open to him. All things are naked to him. He sees all the secrets. That stuff that only they know about, right? The skeleton in the closet, the one you don't want to talk about, the things that you hope they will never find out, the things that terrify you that one day they will discover and it will ruin the relationship or it will break trust, it'll hurt what they think of you, all that stuff, you know that? It's not hidden. It's written in a book. And according to Romans 2, there's a day where God judges and all the world stands guilty. But on that day, when, you, when it's made manifest, here's what you did and you knew it was wrong. Here's what you said they should do and you didn't do it yourself. Here's what you said. Here's what you thought was secret. Think about that day. That's, this is a sobering thought that man would stand and the books would be brought out and would be recorded in black and white. Here are your works. Who's judged? The unjust are judged on that day. And notice if you would the sentence. And I, I don't love to read this, but I am grateful that it's clear at least. Verse 15, whosoever was not found written in the book of life, same punishment as the Antichrist, same punishment as far as location goes as the beast, same, same punishment as the false prophet, excuse me, same punishment as Satan as far as location goes. 
Were death and hell are cast? There's a difference between hell and the lake of fire. Similar, yes, but hell you could think of as gel, the temporary holding place for the unjust dead. The lake of fire you could think of as prison, the temporary or the permanent holding place for those that are the unjust. But the lake of fire is now resurrected people, right? In the same way that those who know Jesus receive a resurrected immortal body that will not die, there is a, a resurrected immortal body that won't quote unquote die, but will be punished or sentenced for eternity. And that is in the lake of fire. And this is not a party. And this is not short lived. This is forever. Now I would love to take a whole sermon. I know that oftentimes there's lots of questions on that. Does the punishment fit the crime? How could a loving God send people to hell? All those sorts of things that people wrestle with. And I, I don't have the time for that today. I wish I did, but I don't. But I, I will say it does help me at least to know the Bible seems to indicate, I would say relatively strongly that there are gradations to the lake of fire, that this punishment has maybe different levels. And I'm not sure how all that's sorted out, but I know that Jesus indicates this when he says to the people that they're preaching the gospel to that, hey, it's gonna be, it's gonna be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it is for you. Somehow it's gonna be better for them, right? There's a parable that Jesus gives about the, the servants who are told to do what the master says. And one servant got the instructions explicitly and was told very clearly what to do. And the servant said, no, and they didn't do it. And another servant got like the instructions, but they were kind of muddied and, and they were a little ambiguous and they weren't entirely sure what to do and they didn't do a good job and they were judged. And what Jesus says is one servant will actually be punished more severely than the other because one knew a lot more than the other. And the, the idea of to whom much is given, much will be required is, is in the context of judgment. So I'm not sure how all of that plays out on what gradations there are to the lake of fire or how this will go, but I know this much. It is not pretty, it is not fun, it is forever. You would never wanna go there. It's not a party with your buddies and, some, and cracking some buds and Satan is the ruler of the kingdom and you're having a good time. It's not that. This is the last thing you would possibly want. And they're judged. But the million dollar question to me is, can you escape this judgment? Who's, is this talking about just the unjust or is this talking about everybody? If it's talking about the unjust and not everybody, how can I be, how can I get out of that? Well, the text tells you this judgment is not for everybody. Because it says in verse 15, whosoever was not found written in the book of life, they were sentenced. They were cast into the lake of fire. Now reverse that, right? Whosoever is found written in the book of life, which is exactly what verse six told you, they are not judged, they are not sentenced. Okay, how do I get written in the book of life? What is the book of life? Well, the book of life, simply put, is the divine register of all the people Jesus has given eternal life to. Okay, how do I get eternal life? Now, now we're getting somewhere. I don't want that judgment, me neither. I don't want that judgment for you or for anybody. So I need to be in the book of life? How do I get that? How do I get eternal life? Well, thankfully... Jesus was super duper duper clear about this on how one might get eternal life, how someone might get their name written in the book of life. And the summary, I'll read it to you in a minute, but the summary is, it is a gift of God. It is not something you work for. It is a gift that he gives to you unbelievably graciously through Jesus. 
Now think about Revelation 20 in the backdrop of the second death and the lake of fire and judgment versus the book of life when you think about John 3.16, most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, should not have the second death, you could say. But what? We'll have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, saved from their sin, saved from hell, saved from everlasting punishment, saved from the lake of fire. He that believeth on him is not condemned. There is no condemnation. There is no sentencing. There is no guilty. There is no verdict for you. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten son of God. It's that simple. Those who believe on Jesus' name and put their faith and their trust in him have everlasting life, have the book of life, their name's written in it. There is no judgment. There is no great white throne. There is no, there is no punishment for them. But those who do not believe are condemned. It's that clear. He said, ah, that's what I hated about my church when I went to grandpa's church and the pastor was all hellfire and brimstone and all this sort of stuff. Look, I don't know if you liked it or loved it. I don't know, but this is what it says. I didn't write it. That's what it says. And I believe it. Those who don't know Jesus are at the resurrection of the unjust, and you don't want that. A pastor was asked one time, do you believe in hell? He said, yeah, I do. He said, where is it? And cleverly, the pastor said, it's at the end of a Christless life. It's at the end of life when you don't know Jesus. And the good news, the best news is that you do not have to stand before that throne on that day. You can settle out of court, as it were. You can take care of it. You can put your faith in Jesus. And this does not have to be you. I want to end today. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to put your hand on your chest. Let's do like you're doing Pledge of Allegiance. We're not going to do the Pledge of Allegiance, but right hand over, uh, over your chest on the left side, Okay. I want you to be real still, and I want you to take two big, deep breaths, in and out, then in and out. Ready? In. Out. Do it again. In. Out. Now, when you go out, can you feel your heartbeat? I can feel mine. I got it. You got your heartbeat? Here's the most blunt but truthful thing I could ever say to you. That little flutter, that beat, 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 beat. That's the only thing between you and hell if you do not know Jesus. That's it. And that little heartbeat is very fickle. It's not going to beat forever. You are not guaranteed tonight. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed next year. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I don't know that I could find a better text in all of the Bible. A scary text, sure, but a clear text, nevertheless, that if you do not know him, you do not have to be judged on that day. You can put your faith and your trust in him. You can have everlasting life. Your name can be written in the book of life if you will believe on the name of Jesus. So my challenge to you this morning is very simple. If you know Jesus... Please do not have a spirit of judgment and criticism that marks you. 
You say, how can I ever, you know, say something's wrong? Look, accountability is fine. Harsh accountability is not. There's a big difference. I heard this from a pastor one time. There's a big difference between a coach and a critic. A coach and a critic seem the same problem. But a critic just drives by, hurls insults, points the finger, says, I knew it, shame on you, whatever, and keeps moving. A coach is very different. A coach sees the same problem, but a coach comes over and puts their arm around and says, hey, listen, you dropped the ball, okay? Everybody saw it. They're all in the stands. You fumbled it. We all know. Okay, that's a problem. We don't want to do that. But let me help you. Here's a tip. Put, the, put that right there. Don't drop that ball. Do this. Now, now listen. We believe in you. We're, for, we're rooting for you. Get back out there. Run that ball with all you got. That's a coach, right? Don't be a critic. Don't have a judgmental spirit. If you know Jesus, do not let that grip you. Judge yourself. But if you don't know Jesus, as much as I possibly could, I would implore you, believe on the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may not perish, but that you may have everlasting life. 